Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 227 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Corinne Jones. She's an assistant professor in the Departments of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences and Neurology at the University of Texas at Austin. She has a clinical dysphagia practice at UT Health Austin and is the director of the Swallow Modulation Lab. Her research interests include quantification of swallowing physiology in typical swallowers and individuals with neurodegenerative disorders and exploration of novel rehabilitation methods to slow progression of dysphagia. And I'm so excited to have Corinne on the podcast today. She recently did a course for MedSLP education. That's MedSLPed.com, all about swallowing physiology measures. Uh, so it's a awesome course. Check it out if you're interested. It's on demand, so you can watch it anytime. And I hope you enjoy this episode. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Corinne, or good afternoon, whatever it is. Both, yeah, both it's, for us it's now. After, afternoon in Texas. No, still morning in Texas. Morning in Texas, afternoon here in Florida. All right. Anyway, yeah. welcome. Thank you for joining me. Yes, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, awesome. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am Corinne Jones. I'm currently an assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin, and I go between the Speech Language Hearing Sciences Department and the Department of Neurology. And so I do the full academic thing, research, teaching, service, 
But my position is, is somewhat unique in the field of academia in that I have a dedicated clinic day. So on Mondays, I see outpatients at UT Health Austin in the neurologic clinics. And so typically focused in individuals with neurogenic dysphagia. And so I do outpatient videofluoroscopy, rehabilitation, and I'm just setting up pharyngeal high-resolution manometry outpatient services, which is a big undertaking, but I think will be an improvement to dysphagia care in Central Texas. Yeah. Awesome. That sounds just like a unicorn position. I feel like so many researchers that I talked to were like, oh, I, I would love to do it all, but my appointment just doesn't allow me to. So yeah, yeah, it, it is. And it was something I was able to negotiate and happy with it. Sometimes I wish that I had more time to dedicate to one thing versus another, but it's really great to keep my hands kind of in all pots. And so then I can also, as I'm doing and digesting the literature, then I can immediately turn around and the next Monday apply that in my practice. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Amazing. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? Today, I thought we would talk about just ways to inject clinical data into anything that you do surrounding dysphagia. And so the main thing I think is for thinking about putting data in is understanding where your patient is now, understanding where you want your patient to go, and then proving that your patient got there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is something as clinicians that we're, we're all have been sort of craving. It's dysphagia is just this mystery black box that are we doing the right thing? What are we measuring? We obviously can go by patient reported outcome measures of success and things like that. But like you said, for the objective assessments, it's, it's pretty difficult to tell what we're measuring. So yeah, I'm excited to hear. Yeah. I mean, so I think we should all just start by asking a lot of questions. And I mean, we, we currently do that in our clinical practice. And so who is my patient? What is their background? And then what are the things that they enjoy about their swallowing? What are the things that they want to work on? So bringing that piece in. So as you mentioned, the patient reported outcomes, I think that's a huge piece is you know, understanding where the patient's coming from, because if we don't know where the patient is coming from, we don't know where they want to go. And we can, we just only have to rely on our impressions of what we think they want to accomplish. So I think that's a, a really great place to start is getting some measures of where they think they are. And the, the qualitative aspect of just having that introductory conversation is so important, but then we can back that up with some numbers. So doing a, a swallowing questionnaire. So the swallowing questionnaires that I typically like to do, my favorite is the Sydney Swallow Questionnaire. That is, is one, I don't think it's as common, no. but I, I've used it in research. So it's a visual analog scale. So it's a 17 question uh, questionnaire and you, that you have a 100 millimeter line and the patient marks their answer on the line. So it's kind of similar to the Cape V okay. visual analog process where, so it's a a visual judgment on a line versus something that might be more of a Likert type scale. And so the reason I like the visual analog scales is that if there is a subtle change and I can measure that. Yeah. So a patient might go from, from answer on a, on, on a single question, say difficulty swallowing saliva might go from a 73 out of a hundred millimeters marked on the line. They might go from like a 73 to a 62 at the end of our therapy practice. But if we had a Likert type scale, they might go from like a kind of a severe 
three out of five to a less severe three out of five, but it's still a three out of five. Right. Right. And so I, I, I like that kind of those kind of fine gradations. We can really measure that change. Interesting. I, I love the psychology behind all that, because I think, you know, as a, as a patient, when you go to fill those things out, it's like, Oh, I did improve a little bit. So I'll move it this far, you know? So it's, it's, right. it's an interesting psychology behind why we think the way that we do and why we think of our improvements the way we do. Yeah. And, and some of that makes me think of, so I use, uh, I see a lot of patients with MS and the diamus is a, a validated scale in MS, but it's just a yes or no question. Do you need to swallow multiple times to get a bolus down? And some people are say like, oh, they often say like sometimes, but the, the tool says yes or no. Yeah. So again, yeah, that's why I like those kind of scales. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. What else you got? Yeah. So kind of thinking through our, our maybe progression of our clinical experience with a patient. So if we have done gotten this background information from our patient, then we might think, do our cranial nerve exam and our oral mech and some feeding trials as part of that, that clinical or bedside swallow eval. I mean, there's different ways to quantify swallowing function here. So again, we all know the limitations of the bedside swallowing evaluation, but the reality is sometimes it's the only thing that a speech pathologist might have. And so what ways can we make that better? And even if you do have the Shangri-La of dysphagia instrumentation, that clinical eval gives us really important initial information that can kind of guide our decision-making where to go. Yep. So uh, a validated tool for that uh, is the, the MASA, the Man Assessment of Swallowing Ability, and that's pretty well published on. It is a rating scale of things that you would do in your oral mech or your cranial nerve exam, and then also some swallowing trials. Yeah. And again, you, we do have to, sorry. I just was going to ask you if you could elaborate, because I know people love that because it's a validated mm -hmm. scale, but can you explain just as a researcher, why the importance of that and why that can be much more valuable than a not validated one? And uh, Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. That's a wonderful question. So yeah, anyone can make a scale. How much do you love cheese? Yes. One to 10, <laughs> you know, and, I'm a 10. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if we are, say, using, thinking about the MASA, that is describing swallowing function or the risk for dysphagia. It's been associated with changes in typical swallowing function measured by those instrumental evaluations. And so we know, or the researchers know, who, who um, did the work behind this, know that if you get a certain score, that is related to actual physiologic changes when measured on the instrumentation. And so there's a lot of work done in, in validation. So that's one portion of the, the validation is kind of measuring the outcome on the tool versus a, a set instrumented standard. There's also validation in if you do the same, use the same tool on the same patient, but at a slightly different time where we wouldn't expect the patient to change, do they one perform in the same way? And then do two, do you fill out, do you complete the tool in the same way? So that kind of like a test retest gotcha. reliability. And that's the same for, for any, any kind of tool. So with the Sydney swallow questionnaire that had to go through that kind of 
validity. Yeah. Cause I feel like I've, I've seen some clinicians say, you know, well, I don't want to use the mask because it's too long or I'd rather use something easier. And, and it's like, no, but this is really good because it's validated. And, and I've seen people say, well, why, what does that matter? You know, and I'm like, no, it's really important. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and my just experience with the use of the tool, it, it's not that long. Yeah. Like it, it's a full one page sheet with each item. And then you have to know what characteristics are going to result in which score. But that's the kind of like daunting when, like when you were first doing an oral neck, like in grad school, you were like, oh, what, what, where do I even start? Yeah. yeah. But then once you do more and more of them, you develop a script and then you can have that implementation be a lot quicker, a lot easier. Yeah. And so just with repeated use of the tool, it's going to get easier, just like us learning any other type of tool. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, of course. And then one other bedside tool that I'm really excited about and I've used in research and sometimes in clinics. So I just personally, I, since the level of patients that I see in my current practice, I don't do a whole lot of bedside swallowing evaluations because I, I use modified barium swallow studies. So I'll do my, my oral neck and my cranial nerve exam, but I typically forego that bedside swallowing trials because I'm already in the fluoro suite. And so makes sense. Uh, yeah. I don't need to spend time. So, yeah. so just that that's where I'm coming from. So when I say I use this tool versus I don't use this tool, it's all, again, will depend on what your setting is and what your patients need and what works for you. But another tool that I really like and I've implemented in research is called the Thomas. It's the test of mastication and swallowing of solids developed by Maggie Lee Huckabee and her colleagues in New Zealand. And they just published in 2018, published a, a nice international norms document, a, a paper with, with norms for different crackers because they don't have saltine crackers in every country. And so it's important to know, is there any difference between the Nabisco saltine versus the Arnott's Salata cracker? Interesting. Yeah. And again, it's that's again, with that validation, it's important that we use criteria that's going to match what we're able to do in clinic. Yep. So what you do is you give your patient a saltine cracker and you ask them to eat the cracker as fast as comfortably possible. And you need a stopwatch to do this. And then you, you know, the patient feeds themselves the cracker. You note how many bites they take, how many swallows they take, how many masticatory cycles or chews, and then you time the, the whole thing. Again, this is, it, it takes practice, but it's something that you can easily practice on your colleagues or your children or your spouses. But yeah, so you, you get this timing information and that's a really rich information. Currently, there's not really great tools to capture masticatory function. Yeah. That's commonly practiced in the US. I've seen some interesting work done out of Japan and I, I was able to visit Japan and, and the lab where they give people a, a, like a little gummy, like a little, essentially like a little fruit chew or like a, uh, a fruit snack, but it's chewier and it has beta carotene in it. So you do a certain number of chews with this and then you spit it out. And then they have a machine that reads the amount of beta carotene. And then if there's more beta carotene, that means that it was chewed up more. So you're more efficient in your chewing. Interesting. So that's really interesting, really excellent quantitative data. We don't have those machines 
here that I'm aware of yeah. um, and certainly in clinical practice, but saltines exist everywhere and we all have stopwatches. Yeah. So this is a, a, a tool that, that we can use with really minimal equipment, but in order to get more of that data. Yeah. And also, even if we do have instrumentation, we don't, there's not really a way to quantify mastication per se on um, an MBS. Yeah. There's that mastication component of the MBS IMP. But again, this, this gives us a, a lot more detail yeah. in swallowing. Can, can you go into that a little bit more, Corinne? Go into sort of why, why this mastication information is so important? Yeah, because uh, we are helping with the patient to make decisions on what the patient's going to be able to tolerate as a diet, uh, particularly, you know, level or hardness of solids. And we often do so by, you know, just watching the patient eat a graham cracker or a saltine or a banana at bedside and then viewing, viewing them with a Lorna Dune cookie under fluoroscopy and then making these decisions kind of based off of our judgment. But again, there's not, you know, any criterion there. And so there, with the Thomas, I will say there's not a criterion that if you perform, if you eat a saltine cracker with more than 70 chews, then you can't have an itsy level seven diet. There's no criterion that, but this just gives us a greater depth of information about what the patient's actually physiologically able to do. Thank you. Yeah, that's helpful. And I, and I think I spent most of my career doing fees too. So I think adding this mastication component on because of the fees, we sort of bypass that. And it's always like, are they chew it? What's right. going on in there? <laughs> like, <laughs> so yeah, certainly. Yeah. Awesome. I sort of love this yep. like tool stacking concept basically. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, what, what can we put into our toolkit yeah, to, yeah. to give us some more information? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so then if we think about progressing onto fees, since you just brought that up, there's lots of things that we are able to see on fees that we're better than we're better, better able to see than on video fluoroscopy. So namely secretion management, and actually, there's been studies showing if you do simultaneous fees in fluoroscopy, we generally rate penetration aspiration and residue more severe on fees given the same swallow. Yeah. So there's different, as of now, there exists uh, different rating scales for secretions, penetration aspiration, and residue. There's one new one that's hot off the press out of Columbia University, led by Dr. James Curtis. It's called the Vases. Yes. I apologize. I, I cannot remember the what the acronym stands that's for. That's okay. I can't either. Vases, yes. yes. But that, that uses that visual analog scale too. So again, it gets out of the 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 Likert type rating into that more continuous yeah. rating scale. And that's actually based off of some research out of uh, Jessica Pisenia and Susan Langmore's work showing that on fees, if you give a clinician a visual analog scale, they're actually more reliable and um, it's a kind of a, a better way to uh, really capture that rating function. Interesting. Yeah. So again, I'm a fan of visual analog scales and like, you might think like, okay, well, I, you know, I, I have to get a ruler. Like, how do I, like, that's going to take a long time, but in all reality, like you get good at 
getting your ruler out. And, and that's, you know, a little something fun and different, yeah. kind of taking us back to grade school. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Just get a clear ruler and keep it on your desk and do some, some validated work. There you go. Awesome. Yeah. So I think fees is just a little bit behind video fluoroscopy on the types of quantitative measures that we can add or that we can assess. So again, we are kind of limited to those rating scales. There's not a whole lot of other ways that we can capture functioning quite as good as on a modified barium swallow. But certainly it's, it's going to get there. And the, the benefits of fees, I think, outweigh the drawbacks. Um, and again, it's going to depend on, on your patient and what your clinical questions are. Because, yeah, if you certainly have a clinical question around laryngeal function or secretion management, then fees is going to answer that question better than fluoroscopy. So thinking about what we can apply to video fluoroscopy, there's so many different tools. And I think like before talking about them, you really need to think about what's going to make sense for you in your clinical practice and what kind of questions are you answering or asking about your patient care. So I think, you know, one of the big differences is in your practice setting. So like if you're an acute SLP and you're doing four, five, six, seven, eight fluoros a day, seeing you know, what the patient's going to be able to eat when they get back up to their room. Then doing, sitting down and, and tracing outlines of residue or pharyngeal constriction might not be the best use of your time. It's not going to necessarily help you answer those questions. Was, what is the patient going to be able to eat right now? Versus if you are an outpatient clinician and you have time to do more thorough analysis and you're going to spend a lot of time with your patients and you're not expecting them to wake up tomorrow and have a completely different swallow, then you can spend the time to say, okay, there's a lot of residue in this patient's pharynx. How can I characterize that? Where, where does it exist? How much is there? What's causing it? And then how am I going to address it? So then we can use different tools to capture that. So I mentioned residue. One thing we can do is it's called the normalized residue ratio scale. So it involves downloading a software that is free, really available to use. It's called ImageJ and you can import videos into ImageJ. And what you do is you essentially outline the amount of residue in the vollecula and the piriform sinuses. And then you make some calculations, uh, you know, based off of the size of the individual, because if an individual is smaller, the same amount of residue is going to take up a greater percentage of the pharynx. And if that same amount of residue is in a larger person, so we normalize it to the size of the individual. And then again, that gives us that number kind of on a scale. And so that's one way to capture residue. Another way is if you are trained in MBSIMP, they have those residue scales. Yeah. Awesome. I, I love that. I love how personalized it is. Cause I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of times we as SLPs have our biases about what we think is too much residue or it's fine. They can handle it, but we truly don't know. We don't know the size of that patient's piriform sinuses. So yeah. So I, I love this, the real sort of personalized aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Another point of residue of why would I take time to like outline it 
in a software program that I have to download and, and do that. But again, it's if you want to capture change over time, then that's going to be a lot more sensitive than if you say do this rating on the MBSIMP, which is a zero, one, two, three, or four. And without going into too much of that, but the difference between three and four is more than half of the bolus is a three. And then four is there was no clearance of the bolus. So like, that's a huge gap. And so like a 100% of the bullets left over versus a 51%. Or within that level three category, it's a 99% to a 51%. So that's a huge range. But if I'm measuring the actual pixels, I can say the rating scale is is not quite a percentage, but it went from an area of 2,138 pixels to an area of 1,856. And so I can show that there is this demonstrable change to my patients. And that, you know, essentially we're coming out to the 30,000 foot view, but I mean, it's what the payer sources want to know. They want to know that our therapy is effective and that we're actually helping these patients. And Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. so this, I think sometimes SLPs think this is time consuming, or I don't have time to do this stuff, but this is really what's going to keep getting your patient, keep you getting paid, keep your right. Yeah. It's it's, coming. (laughs) Yeah. What we use to make our decisions. And and, and if we can document that we're doing this then it's, it's practicing at a very high level. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It can feel a little daunting getting into it, but again, I, with practice things get a lot quicker. Yeah. I think it's such the fun sciencey part of what we do. So absolutely. Yeah. And then kind of getting to know, because like, I feel like I get energized by like the numbers and seeing the change in numbers. Yeah. And I think patients can really appreciate that too. So like us as clinicians, we see endoscopy, we see video thoroscopy every day. So we know the structures, we know the physiology, we know what's going right and what's going wrong. But to a patient, this is like the first time they've ever seen that. And, you know, if they have five minutes with a clinician after the study and they're saying, oh, there's a lot of residue here and there's, this is, this is what's going wrong. The patient might have a hard time understanding what that implies and kind of where that assessment is coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And especially like thinking of change over time too, like it could be apples and oranges to them, but if they know like, Oh, I went from a level of 150 to a level of 125, like, Oh, that's a 25 point difference on whatever tool you're using. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So kind of giving the patient that, that education and that more information can be really engaging as well. Yeah. Yeah. My, I got exposed to a lot more of this with my son's SLP. My my son's nonverbal, but Mm -hmm. his SLP uses so many different data points to track like his nonverbal language skills. And she, I just had a meeting with her a few weeks ago and she showed me his improvements from like the beginning of the year. And I was like, Holy cow. Like to me, he's just being the same turd that he can be sometimes, you know, but I'm like, (laughs) but looking at what he actually has accomplished with all of these data points, I was like, oh my God, this is so great. This is so Mm -hmm. fascinating. So I think this can be so powerful and it's so motivating to keep going with therapy for patients too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 
especially like if you can figure out, you plot it on a graph like using Excel or Google Docs, it's not that hard to make a graph, but yeah. Yeah. people are used to looking at graphs. And so, and you can like see the trajectory and then our brain automatically wants to pull yeah. that out into seeing like what's possible in the future. And I think you make a really good point of with your son, you're with him every day and you might yeah. not see that incremental change, but then when it's presented to you objectively, then that's, yeah. that's very meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. It was very powerful. So, yeah. Again, with going back to modified barium swallow studies, I mean, I could take a whole eight hours to talk about all of the tools and when to use them and when not, but again, like just really think about what your question is and like when you're trying to decide what tools you want to use. So say if you do a modified barium swallow study and you notice some um, cricopharyngeal dysfunctions, the UES is not opening quite as much. There's a way that we can actually measure that. And so again, it's that image J and you essentially just draw a line at the narrowest point during maximum UES opening. And you can either normalize it to the distance between the C2 vertebrae and the C4 vertebrae as kind of a correlate of height. Or if you have a referent, like if you put a coin on the chin or the neck, those are usually done more for research purposes. So in my clinic, I, I don't necessarily put a coin on the chin or the neck, but I can make those references scaled to an internal structure. Yeah. And so then I can get this reference. So how much is the UES opening or how little in a case of a patient with, with UES dysfunction? And then I can compare that to norms. And so, you know, there are norms out there based off of that C2, C4 scalar. And then I can say, okay, well, this patient falls 20% below a normal individual of his age. Because we know with age, there's changes to swallowing function. So as we are primed with this data, we need to make sure that we're referring to an appropriate normative data set. And so I have this information and then I can track this patient over time to see, okay, maybe there's also reduced anterior hyoid movement. So I think that this reduced UES opening might be due to that decreased pull. So I could do some head lift exercises or chin tuck against resistance or something and then repeat a study and see demonstrably has that changed. And, you know, if it hasn't changed, then we might need to do some further investigation, refer to an ENT, potentially look at the pressures in the throat, but then we can really get that metric and see over time. So that UES opening is going to be really important for my decision-making for that patient. If I have another patient who has quite a bit of a delayed swallow trigger and incomplete laryngeal vestibule closure. And so a lot of airway protection issues, but their UES is opening completely when they're able to trigger that swallow, then uh, clinically, I, I don't necessarily need to op measure that opening because that's not one of my questions. But instead I might measure, okay, well, how long is that delay? So when, you know, when the polis passes the ramus of the mandible, how many frames of video, if I'm going at 30 frames a second, ideally, until the hyoid burst. And so I can document that. And then how many frames between the hyoid burst and when the laryngeal vestibule fully closes to capture that delay in laryngeal vestibule closure. So those timing measures are going to give me more information because that's going to help me with my clinical decision-making than 
that. So just because something's out there and you can measure it doesn't mean that you're going to have to measure it. And again, if it's not going to change your clinical decision-making, if it's not related to your clinical question, then not worth your time. And that, that's going to be different for whatever patients that you see in whatever your clinical practice is. And then I think uh, I'll spend some time. And again, I could speak for a whole course on this, but I won't. Uh, but one thing I'm really passionate about, and I have a lot of experience, is pharyngeal high-resolution manometry. So with our imaging studies, they give us so much helpful information. You know, what's happening with the bolus? How are the structures moving? How does the patient react to changes in physiology? How do they react to penetration aspiration or residue? But it doesn't really tell us about what happens when two structures come together. So like I can, if you think about like opening a door, if the door is unlatched, so you don't have that resistance, you can put your hand on a door and you're contacting the door, but the door cannot go anywhere. Like if you just gently place your hand there, you can put your hand in a door and have some force behind it and then open the door. But just looking at that hand, contacting the door, you don't know what's happening behind there. Mm -hmm. So I think looking at the results from our imaging studies, oftentimes like we want to describe the reasoning why behind we see, why we see certain things. And sometimes we want to call that weakness, but do we know if it's weak? Again, from imaging, we just know contact versus no contact. And that's it. There's lots of different things that can impact movement that are not related to weakness or muscle strength. So manometry is a way to measure pressure. That's just what the word manometry stands for. And this is pharyngeal, so in the pharynx, high resolution manometry. And this is high resolution in time and in sensors, the number of sensors in the pharynx. So back a decade and a half ago with the K-Swallow workstation, um, where you could do fees or record fluoro or measure tongue pressure, there was also a manometry set up. So that was commonly used in clinic, but then there's some other, other systems that were what we call conventional. So typically three to six sensors in the pharynx. And they usually only measure pressures from one direction. So you would put the pressure catheter in, it goes up through the nose, swallow down similar to an NG tube. And you would look at your pressure reading on the screen and you would find where your lowest sensor is, where that pressure is in the, goes through the UES. So that's a sphincter. So it's tight, it's closed at rest. And so it has high pressure. So if you find the UES, then you have one sensor that might be four centimeters above that, one sensor that might be another three centimeters above that. But again, if we have someone who's four foot 11 and someone who's six foot 11 with that same pressure array, we're going to get wildly different data. And also when we swallow, so if we think about where the UES is when we swallow, UES is made of the cricopharyngeus muscles, and the main muscular component, crico attached to the cricoid, and we have hyolaryngeal elevation, so that's going to get pulled up. We have our longitudinal pharyngeal muscles that are attached to the UES, and those shorten, and that's going to get pulled up. So the UES physically moves up when we swallow. And if we have one sensor there, 
and then kind of a dead zone between the next sensor, then we don't really capture all of UES functioning. So in the mid-aughts, there was an improvement in this technology called high-resolution manometry. So there's now instead of three sensors in the pharynx, you have, again, depending on your height, anywhere between nine and say 15. So there's a sensor every one centimeter or less. So then your UES moves, but that's not a problem because you have another sensor there to capture that pressure. And this tool, this high-resolution manometry is now really standard of practice in any GI clinic because it it measures esophageal motility. And there's a really clear-cut classification system. It's called the Chicago classification. And so different parameters of of esophageal contraction and bolus flow. And then, you know, the the gastroenterologist can say, oh, this is a type two or a type one. And they, then that helps them with their clinical decision-making. Currently, there's no commercially available system designed for the pharynx, just because it's a new, newer application in the pharynx and not as many centers are doing it. So we just use our, the esophageal probes and we just don't put them in quite as far. Gotcha. But we get a, a huge wealth of pressure data from the soft palate through the cervical esophagus. So that tells us not necessarily a one-to-one correlative strength, but kind of a surrogate of strength. So how much pressure is this patient generating in their throat to propel the bolus? And then what's happening at the UES? So over the last... 10, 12 years of pharyngeal high-resolution manometry, we've gotten a lot of really interesting information about normal swallowing, because that's kind of where we start. We have to understand what we're looking at. But then we've started to to describe how things can go wrong. And I think things that are, are really interesting have been how important the soft palate is or pressures generated by the soft palate are for swallowing physiology. So in healthy individuals, the soft palate will close tighter with changes in bolus volumes with larger boluses or with more viscous boluses. And pressures in the soft palate, if you ask someone to do an effortful swallow, those have really large magnitude changes versus, say, lower in the pharynx around the level of the larynx. Um, If someone has UES dysfunction, so obstruction in the UES, oftentimes they will increase those velopharyngeal pressures as a compensation to kind of help propel the bolus. And that makes sense. If you have an obstruction down below, you're going to need to squeeze harder up above, not only to push the bolus through the pharynx, but to close off the soft palate. The bolus is going to go through the area of of least resistance. And so if you have low soft palate pressures, then you're going to get liquid up your nose because your UES is tight. But then if we fix the UES functioning with a dilation or a myotomy or rehabilitation, depending on why it's not opening well enough, then those increased pressures in the soft palate kind of fade away. They, They decrease. So that's just that been an interesting finding, something that yeah, yeah. we weren't even measuring with conventional manometry. Yeah. What, what got you, I guess, down this rabbit hole? <laughs> yeah. So I did my master's at the University of Wisconsin and fell in love with dysphagia. And that's what I wanted to 
devote my, my clinical practice to. I had an interest in research, but really wanted that clinical training in dysphagia. And I was looking for jobs after I graduated and I wanted a CF in a hospital only doing dysphagia. And those are, are hard to come by, but I saw that Dr. Tim McCullough was hiring a research lab manager. And so I was already in Madison and I had seen him present on his, at the time there was one study published on pharyngeal high resolution manometry and it was from his lab. And so, you know, I was interested in that. If you've ever seen any publications or presentations, like the, the data output is like these beautiful colors. Yeah, and so, you yeah. know, I was drawn to that. I'm a very visual person. And so, so I like that. And so I applied for the job as the lab manager and I, you know, said in the interview, I'll, I'll do this for a year, but then I want to go do my CF. And then we were able to work out doing a part-time CF in the University of Wisconsin Hospital and Clinics oh, while awesome. I was part-time lab manager for him. Oh, awesome. Um, so that was, yeah, again, another unicorn position. I got to yeah. be a clinician. And then my job essentially for part of that time was to sit at a computer, look at these pressures in the pharynx and kind of figure out what they meant. Yeah. And so I think, you know, it's a, it's a really rich data set that we get from pharyngeal high resolution manometry. It can add a lot. We're still in the early stages of understanding, you know, what exactly is going to be the best way to apply it, how we can use this information to target treatments. We have some ideas, but knowing like if I have a pressure of less than this cutoff, then this is concerning. We're still trying to figure out how best to use the data. And then we're also trying to advocate for how we can get this tool into more speech pathologist hands. Yes, that's going to be my next question. Yeah. yeah, it's really tough. Currently, there's no CPT code for that speech pathologist can bill for the procedure. Gotcha. Okay. So there's a couple different ways that clinics are set up. The University of Wisconsin, they have their own hospital-specific code. It's an unlisted code that speech pathologists can bill. They perform their evaluation in concert with an ENT, and so they have, uh, have that sign-off. At Medical University of South Carolina, they have Ashley O'Rourke, who's an ENT, also a speech pathologist, and so she's involved in, in those procedures, and she, as the physician, can bill the, t- the typical code. And then other clinics, including my clinic, a clinic at Baylor and at MGH, we partner with the GI clinic. And so gotcha. the, the GI physician would bill the manometry code. We bill a bedside, a 92610. So it, reimbursement's not great. Unfortunately, yeah. it's hard to then cover the cost of this really insanely complicated equipment. So I think, you know, one of the big barriers is, is getting a code that speech pathologists can bill. And so, yeah, learning a lot about how, how that system works. Yeah. Do you think it's more of, I think, do we partner with GIs? You know, is that sort of the avenue that we go down first to really it, show? Yeah, especially initially. And yeah. like, if we, yeah. like, we should be partnering with GIs much more often. Yeah. And if they have the system, they have the setup. They have, usually it's a tech that places the catheter that they have. You don't need to be a physician to to place the catheter, but a speech pathologist certainly can place the catheter and then working, seeing what works best for, for figuring out that protocol. Again, getting us that more, that clearer data can help us then make decisions for our patients that will lead to better 
more targeted treatment and then better outcomes, which we will have this then inherent measurement in. Yeah. Awesome. All right. What's next? Where do you want to? Yeah. So there's, I mean, other kind of adjunctive things we can measure respiratory drive. So particularly if we want to use the EMST tool or any expiratory muscle strength training tool or protocol, we want to be able to know what the patient can do so we can set the target. So with any type of resistance training, again, we want to work at a certain percent of the, of the percentage of the maximum output. And typically with the, the currently available expiratory muscle strength training tools, you don't get necessarily max output. It's did you get air through the device or did you not at this setting? But if we can measure those maximum expiratory pressures, that will help us guide not only the patient's progress, but where to set their tool next. And then that's going to be the same if we're using a resistance protocol with tongue strengthening. So the IOP or the the tongueometer, we need to know what their maximum output is. We then find that point to train at. So usually about 80% of the max, but... Some, some protocols differ a little bit. Thank you. Yeah. And again, those kind of things, I, I, those, I like those approaches because not only gives us data to work on from their current functioning and, and their progression, but it also gives the patient that feedback. So yep. if the patient is working with the tongueometer and they see like, oh man, I got a 35 kilopascals, whereas last week I was, you know, only at 30. And so they, they get that knowledge of the, their progression. They yep. might not know or necessarily need to know why that increase in pressure is going to help all along the oral pharyngeal swallow process, but just knowing where they are is, is going to be incredibly meaningful. Yep. And I like to use the analogy, like if you are learning how to shoot a free throw, but like there's some kind of curtain and you can't ever see if the ball made it in the hoop, ah! then like how, how, yeah. how are you going to get better? So having these kind of tools where our patient gets the knowledge of how they're performing in the motor learning literature, we call it knowledge of results. Yeah. Then that helps them figure out that motor plan. So then they can repeat that performance and then achieve a certain goal. Yeah. Awesome. Sort of that whole, like, yeah, that's any tool that we can use that gives us data. We can also use it for biofeedback. So we can use high resolution manometry. We can use EMG again, it's making a certain signal visible or somehow able to be sensed by the patient. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of that whole like gamification motivation thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. yeah, if I was shooting free throws and my coach was like, good job. Yeah. Good job. Like, Excellent. Cool. Keep going. Yeah. And yeah. not able to tell me, oh, you, you got it in or oh, it was airball or those kind of things. And especially for these like really complex motor function that is following, like we need to be able to have that feedback so we can change our underlying strategy for whatever task we're trying to do. Awesome. Yeah. And so then I've kind of walked us through the, from the first meeting with the patient all the way through 
But then we need to do that reevaluation. So then we know if the patient got better, then we can document that success. And if there isn't success, then we need to adjust our strategy. So I like to say, and someone had mentioned this to me, I can't remember exactly who, but it has really stuck with me is that I think it was Nadine Connor, but is that the speech language pathologists, we are scientists. And so our whole practice is based off of the scientific method. So we have an observation, we get a referral for a patient and we meet the patient and we generate a question. Okay, this person is complaining of needing multiple swallows to get food down. Sometimes they'll cough up a piece of lettuce from a hamburger they ate yesterday. They coughing quite a lot. I think the signs might point me to potentially there might be a, a diverticula that's catching this food. Okay. So that's my question and that's my hypothesis. And so then I need to test that hypothesis. So I perform a modified barium swallow study and then turns out, oh, they don't have a diverticula. So my hypothesis was wrong. Okay. What's, what's going to be my new hypothesis then? And so we go through this kind of iterative question, generate a hypothesis, gather data, evaluate that hypothesis. And that kind of goes throughout the whole thing. So it's within that study, what happens if I do a chin tuck? I might hypothesize that the patient could close their airway better. Did that happen? Okay. Yes, it did. Great. Et cetera, go on. But you might also then go through the whole therapeutic process. Like, okay, we did this eight weeks of progressive resistance tongue strengthening how did this improve swallowing function? So then you go back and then you repeat your initial testing. And so then, yeah. then you have documentation of, of whether or not it works. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great, yeah, that's a great explanation. Yeah. And then you can, again, repeat those patient reported outcome measures Yeah, because that is really important of what the patient feels, how the patient feels like they've done. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of love that combination of like the scientific method also with like the principles of neuroplasticity. Like I think when I sort of learned about all of those and, and why we, why we need to involve all of those with what we do with our assessments and treatments, I was like, oh, this makes so much more sense about why we do the things we do and why we need to keep doing the things we do and changing the things that we do. So. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Corinne. Did we cover everything? I think so. Awesome. I mean, well, no, of course we didn't cover everything. No, correct. (laughs) (laughs) All that we have time for today, you know. Right, right, right. Yes. So thank you. This was so, so, so valuable. This was so helpful. Any, any final thoughts, anything else you'd like to share? No, I'm always, I'm always happy to nerd out. And so if anyone has any questions about any of the tools or, or how to get them into practice or when they might be appropriate, please, please shoot me an email and I, you can send out give my contact information okay. out there. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And I just, Corinne included a very lengthy detailed <laughs> reference list. So if any of you are driving and listening and you're like, Oh, what paper was that? What is this? It's all in the references, which will all be in the show notes. So you will have all have access to this. So thank you, Corinne. I appreciate you so much. This was so helpful and so valuable. And I hope both clinicians and researchers took something home from this. All right. Thank you so much, Teresa. Yeah. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, 
and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.